1: banking services provided by Green Dot Bank, member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY.
2: APY can change at any time.
3: Welcome to the Bloomberg Markets Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney, along with my co-host, Bonnie Quinn.
2: Every business day, we bring you interviews from CEOs, market pros, and Bloomberg experts, along with essential market-moving news.
3: Find the Bloomberg Markets Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts and on Bloomberg.com.
2: All right, let's take a look at Bitcoin. For something just a little bit different, <laughs> why not? Let's move to uh, the uh, digital currency space. We're looking at 33,846 today. It is down about three-tenths of 1% after a couple of very down days in the last few days. Let's bring in somebody who knows a lot about this. Uh, Meltem Demirors is Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares Group, about $750 million in the digital space. Meltem, thank you for joining. What do you make of the flows into the likes of Bitcoin over the last few days and weeks and mm. the amount of sort of new vehicles that have cropped up, including Anthony Scaramucci's new Bitcoin ETF. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So great to be back on the show, and I want to make a minor correction. We actually at Coinshares uh, hit a record high of $3.9 billion in AUM, so it's quite a step up from the $750 million oh, we had good. about a year ago, huh. and actually on the first trading day of the year this year, we hit a new high where we saw over $200 million of our exchange traded products traded in one single trading session, wow. January 4th, big day, so I'll definitely say there's a lot of interest in crypto ETPs and crypto vehicles. Well, so just Meltem,
2: let's let's clarify exactly that. You had 750 million a year ago. You have what now? And has it been due to flows or due to the, you know, the, the, the massive gains that we've seen in the likes of Bitcoin?
1: Absolutely. So we have 3.9 billion in assets under management in our exchange traded products. And that is a result of two factors, as you alluded to. One factor, obviously, is the price rise. But in addition, we've seen a tremendous amount of inflows into our ETPs as well as other structured products. And again, what we're seeing is a tremendous amount of participation from not just crypto native asset managers like ourselves. We are currently the second largest asset manager in the world in our industry, but we're also seeing traditional asset managers, hedge fund managers, Anthony Scaramucci, One River in the UK entering into this market. And in significant size, we're talking about multi-billion dollar vehicles here. So new inflows combined with the price rally has resulted in a tremendous Amount of market activity across the board.
3: Talk to us about the trading that we've seen, Meltem, in uh, Bitcoin just specifically. Uh, it's had just extraordinary rise up here. I'm just mm-hmm. looking at it. You know, back in March when a lot of risk assets were melting down, it was about five thousand dollars, and here we are, at, you know, just under thirty-four thousand after peaking at over forty thousand. Talk to us about what we've seen in the price of Bitcoin, maybe even the recent volatility uh, in mm-hmm. Bitcoin.
1: Absolutely. And the trading story, you know, we have a large trading desk at our firm. We're trading about five to seven billion of notional volume every month. What we've really seen last year around this time, the majority of Bitcoin trading volume was in the Bitcoin Tether trade pair. Tether, um, as some of your listeners might know, is a blockchain based digital dollar. So the majority of volume we saw was happening during Asia trading hours in the Bitcoin Tether trading pair. Over the last 12 months, and particularly in December and the start of this year, what we've seen is an uptick in volume in the Bitcoin-USD pair, which is now the most dominant pair. And in addition, a lot of trading activity has shifted to U.S. and U.K. market hours. So to us, that's one of the clear indications Mm -hmm. that volume is starting to shift. And then the last piece I'll add that's important to note is as many may know, the CME in 2017 launched a Bitcoin derivatives market. They have a futures contract and an options contract. In December, the uh, Bitcoin options contract at CME hit an all-time high of $1 billion in monthly expiry. And we're seeing a tremendous amount of uptick in volume on that CME venue, whereas historically in the past, the majority of options and derivatives volume had been on crypto native platforms, particularly those based in the Asia Pacific region. We're now starting to see a lot more participation in USD denominated markets tied to the legacy banking system and accessed by institutions through their existing uh, SCMs and their existing brokerage providers
2: how do you pick a pair build him milton i mean you know obviously we quote bitcoin in terms of it versus the us dollar you talk about mm. it versus tether and, and others what what are the uh, what are the options i suppose these days
1: Sure. So Tether is a dollar, right? Every Tether is equal to a dollar. It's just the dollar is on a on a blockchain, so it trades natively on chain. It's very similar to the concept of a central bank digital currency, except for central bank issuing it. In this instance, it's a private company issuing it with the dollars held in in reserve and collateral. And really, I think the importance of, of the shift from Tether to USD is an indication that more of the people who are accessing capital markets in crypto are. Coming from a bank accounts rather than being crypto-native trading firms. So I think that's really the key insight for us there. Um, in terms of trade pairs, you know, Bitcoin is a very deep, very liquid market at this stage. Three years ago, not so deep, not so liquid. <laughs> and today, it's a 24-7 global market. Um, it's quoted primarily in USD, but obviously there are hundreds of, of trade pairs in various currencies. But the USD trade pair is really the most prominent one. And that's certainly the one we track at our firm.
3: Mm. extraordinary story. Meltem, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate getting the update and the update on the assets under management. Uh, that is just extraordinary over the past uh, 12 months. Uh, Meltem Demir's Chief Strategy Officer for CoinShares Group. Uh, just uh, really, Vani, just that the growth in, and the depth of the marketplace, as Meltem was mentioning, to me that's one of the most impressive things—the depth of the marketplace.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, let's not forget that Bitcoin itself is up three hundred thirty percent over the last twelve months. So you know yep. that accounts for, for some of that. But also, the, these are such tremendously volatile assets, Paul. You know.
3: Yeah, but as uh, presumably as you talk to the bulls, as this market becomes deeper and broader uh, and, and perhaps more liquid with more players, uh, that becomes a little bit uh, more stable, we'll see.
2: And it is time to talk markets once again now. Let's bring in Brent Schutte, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwell Western Mutual Wealth Management. Brent, it's been quite the few months. It's been, you know, crazy, crazy times here in the United States. The markets, though, seem to have blithely just gone higher and higher, at least equity markets. And, you know, more recently, we've been getting a bit of a shift in bond markets. What's, what's the main decision that you've had to make over the last, say, four weeks?
4: Well, I think to your earlier comments about kind of the markets moving higher and some of the issues that are still out there, I want to point out that the markets discount more into the future. And so the markets are thinking about the end of COVID-19, hopefully, and now it's getting back on the public and those brighter days ahead in the future. And I think that as you invest money, as you think about those things, um, certainly there has been some troubling data out. There's been some troubling things happen, which have happened in the last four weeks. Uh, but from an investment perspective, I think it's important to point out that you always need to be looking ahead. And I think the last four weeks, we've had to focus on that quite a bit, making sure that we're looking ahead uh, into hopefully the next few months uh, when the world looks just a bit brighter and is operating on multiple cylinders of growth. And so I guess in a way to answer your question, the last four weeks, um, certainly looking at the data, but looking ahead more so, and that's what the market is doing right now. It's looking ahead to what happens in the future, and it's seeing a brighter one ahead.
3: All right. So a brighter outlook ahead. Where are you going? Where are you allocating capital, Brent?
4: Well, so I think for the last three years, technology growth stocks have been only game in town and kind of ties into my cylinders of growth commentary, because I do think next year will be the first, or this year, I should say now, we're in the new year, um, will be the first year in many, actually three, that we've operated both in the U.S. and the globe on multiple cylinders of growth. And by that, I mean, back in 2018, we were kind of introduced to the trade war. That was designed to slow global growth. And it was designed to harm manufacturing and exports around the, uh, around the world. And that actually had a, a blowback into the U.S. And so if you think about it, technology was really unimpacted by that. It was the place of earnings growth. Growth was narrow and the market was narrow. Those two things were aligned. As you look into 2021, um, that hopefully will be off the boil. Um, So COVID, I should say, also kept that going. COVID actually in the beginning narrowed the economy, narrowed the markets. Technology was kind of the only game in town. And recently you've seen the market broaden out because the economy is broadening out. And so we continue to think that's a backdrop in 2021. Uh, That means that things that haven't done as well, like cyclical stocks, like value stocks, like small cap stocks, which started doing better in Q4, will continue to do well into the new year. And that's where we're focusing most of our attention on.
2: That's fascinating. So what kind of value plays are out there that you see then?
4: Well, from a broad perspective, we we use broad-based ETFs and and, uh, mutual funds for the most part. So we are investing along the lines of just value stocks in some of those sectors that have been harmed a lot. So think of financials, think energy, Um, think stocks that are just cheaper than some of the growth stocks that have been um, bid up kind of because rates are low and because they're story stocks with a compelling future. I'm not suggesting that future doesn't come to fruition. I just think 2021 is a year when you kind of get back to some of the things that are a bit more boring, like perhaps industrials, financials, things where um, things that have been impacted for the past few years because of some of these uh, things that are out there that have um, kept global growth from firing on all cylinders, which, as I mentioned before, I think in 2021, that alleviates.
3: So, Brent, I guess the you know one of the issues for a lot of people as they think about uh, equity markets is uh, market cap. The big cap names you've, you've talked about have been such good stories for a long time. And as we broaden out our view, how are you viewing small cap, mid cap stocks? Do you, do you still see um, – is there opportunity there?
4: Yes. I mean I, I think they've certainly – I mean so in the fourth quarter, small and mid cap stocks in the indexes we look at were up 24 and 30% respectively. I'm not suggesting that large caps aren't a bad story. I think the S&P was up 12%. So it's not that there isn't still opportunities within some of those other segments. Uh, It's just that I think in 2021, small and mid-cap stocks and value stocks, for that matter, have further room to run. Look, growth versus value is at all-time extremes. And, And I think that's been logical for the reasons that I mentioned. But as you think about 2021, think about more monetary policy. The Fed is not going to stop. They have to have credibility in the future. They need 2% inflation. The Fed's QE is designed to make you take risk. Fiscal policymakers are not going to stop. Um, You have COVID hopefully alleviating its impact on the rest of the economy. You have an inventory rebuild that has to happen. And you have some pent-up demand from consumers who actually – Um, certainly in the aggregate have saved money. There still are people who are in in trouble and hopefully the stimulus gets them through and then they get jobs back. But you have an economy that's going to be operating on all cylinders. And to us, that means this recent rotation that we have seen continues into 2021 because earnings growth will broaden out and technology won't be the only game in town. Uh, And so um, that's where we're kind of focused.
2: Would you go so far then, Brent, as to be short some of these growth stocks like a Tesla, for example?
4: no um that's not our our our, we're our long-term investors we take a long-term approach and a long-term outlook we still own large cap stocks well i suppose what i'm really
2: asking is do you think they're going to sell off massively you may not take a position on it given what you do you know but but do you think they're going to sell off
4: no i I don't know that there's a massive sell off out there and i think and and i've equated this in the past to 1999 but let me make a caveat i don't think things in some of those stocks are anywhere near they were in 1999. there are earnings there are um, stories that are there that are real um, versus what I think happened in 1999, I'm just suggesting that investors A um, don't lose diversification because I think right now the temptation is high to do so because they've been emboldened by the past, and B nudge their portfolios um, in in that direction because I think there's the opportunity to add incremental performance above and beyond um, what they would get by just taking uh, you know a steady hold, buy and hold um,
3: kind of perspective. Hey, Brent, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate uh, your perspective. Brent Schutte, Chief Investment Strategist for Northwestern Mutual uh, Wealth Management, giving us his bullish call uh, on the markets for 2021, talking about that rotation trade, uh, allocating a little bit more to some of those um, growth, I mean, uh, value stories, cyclical names, maybe even small caps as well. It is time for Bloomberg Opinion. We're joined today by Joe Nacera. He's a Bloomberg Opinion columnist uh, joining us. Joe's out with a fascinating column today on a very important topic, and that is what liability should the social media companies like Twitter like Facebook and others have for the content that appears on their platform. And of course, that is absolutely front of uh, and center right here as President Trump uh, has been uh, temporarily at least taken off of both Facebook and Twitter for some issues as it relates to last week's uh, uprising uh, in the Capitol. Joe, thanks so much for joining us here. Love to get your thoughts here um, about this very important topic.
5: Um. Well, that's a pretty broad question. Um, my, my, core, my core feeling is that um, we just should not live in a world where four Silicon Valley bros, you know, <laughs> Tim, named Tim and Mark and, and, and uh, uh, Jack and, and Sundar get to decide, you know, who, who gets to be on their platform and who doesn't get to be on their platform. Or, or what kind of speech, I should say, gets to be on their platform. So, you know, th- there's, a, there's a fundamental problem there that hasn't been solved. And, um, you know, Facebook has 15,000 content moderators, 15,000. And yet there's still all kinds of hate speech on there. Obviously, this uprising was was in no small part planned on Facebook. Um and, and Facebook is always behind the curve in trying to get this things, these things off, and in many cases leaves them on because they don't violate their terms of service, and we barely know what their terms of service are. <laughs> so, so, jo- so
2: mm-hmm. yeah, Sorry, Joe... Sorry,
5: Joe, continue. No, 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 you go. You go. Your turn.
2: All right, my turn. I was going to say, what responsibility exactly does the likes of Mark Zuckerberg and his company, which is in the private sector, it's not a government company, it's a private company, how much responsibility does he and the company have?
5: Well, do you mean from a legal standpoint or do you mean from a, a, a societal and moral
3: standpoint? See, I, from, the from a
2: societal and moral standpoint first, because I imagine some of the reason we saw these actions being taken in the last few days is actually from a legal standpoint, not from a societal standpoint. But that's, I, you know, opinion I aside.
5: I, I, I don't I don't think that's true. You I, don't. Don't think they have, I mean, the key thing is, see, they have no legal liability because of Section 230. Of the 19, uh, 1996 Communications now, uh, excuse me, the uh, the uh, Communications Decency Act of 1996. So they have no legal responsibility because they are they they have they have immunity. They're just viewed as a platform, and anybody can put anything on there, and the person who puts it on has the liability. Now, you know, I I think this is a huge huge problem because it doesn't give these guys any incentive to take off the incendiary kind of uh, posts that. Uh, on the one hand, have been very damaging to America and uh, to our politics and to our cultural norms. But on the other hand, they drive traffic. They make money for the companies. So the companies don't have a ton of incentive to take that stuff off. Um, And so, you know, my argument really is, comes down to this, you know, if you're a farmer company, one of the reasons you want your drugs to work, not the only reason, but one of them, is because if they don't, you're going to get sued to smithereens. And, and that helps keep companies in line. Um, and, and, and if Facebook and Twitter and Apple and Amazon all had the same um, uh, the possibility of, 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 of lawsuits, it would, I believe, change the way
3: they think and act about um, uh, about what they have online. Joe, what do you think the appetite is within Washington to uh, eliminate Section 230 of the Communications Act?
5: I think it's pretty high, actually. Um, all the Republicans want it, although they want it for a stupid reason. Um, they want it because they, they think of it as a way to punish uh, the tech companies, uh, especially Facebook and Twitter, because they claim that you know, the conservative views don't get, are censored. Right. which is baloney, which is just baloney. Um, uh, but, but you know, there, there are a lot of Democrats who have come around to this to it, too. I mean, it's not, it's not a, a slam dunk, but um, uh, there is a sense that something has to change and that you can't keep counting on Twitter and Facebook to, to do this themselves because they just, they don't have the manpower and they don't really have the, they're not, they don't have the willingness. So, um uh, so that's that's what the issue is. Maybe, I mean, if somebody could figure out a way to modify Section 230 so it creates some legal liability liability um, uh, without getting rid of it entirely, I think that would be a great solution.
2: Well, here's I one for you. Think
5: about, I don't, yeah, go
2: ahead. I mean, it's not unlimited, this immunity. It specifically accepts federal criminal liability. So what if someone gets up there and argues that, you know, across states, people were planning to meet and carry out violence on members of Congress last Wednesday? Is that? It, I mean, there's potential federal liability there.
5: there. There is absolutely. That's a very, very narrow slice of the stuff that's on Twitter and Facebook that's wrong. Um, for instance, you know, you can, you can put anti-Semitic slurs on there till Kingdom Come. You can. You could, until, until this year, you could be a Holocaust denier on Facebook. So, you know, in those things, there's, there's, no, there's no legal liability. The, the, the amount of legal liability, you know, is very, very narrow uh, for these companies. You're right. Uh, if, if a crime... Is being planned on Facebook, and Facebook doesn't do anything about it. That's a problem. But but as a general rule, there's no legal liability.
3: Joe, what do you expect the response from Silicon Valley to be to some of this mounting pressure for regulating speech?
5: Well, I think they actually – they're not going to be in favor of eliminating 230, but they – if you ask, there's a company called Axios, which I'm sure you've heard of, yep. which is an online site that's very uh, aimed at the Washington movers and shakers. Facebook advertises on that site all the time, and their advertisements always say, "We want to be regulated. It needs to be further regulated." What they really want is for the federal government to take this problem off their hands, so that uh, uh, you know, so that it becomes a government mandate that certain Certain speech has to be
6: removed, so they don't—they
5: don't feel like, you know, they're—they're—it's on them that it's their decision. Um, so uh, actually, the appetite is higher—it's it's higher than you might think.
2: Joe, it's a great column. There's so much nuance in here, and I urge everybody to uh, rush out there and read Jono Sarah's column today in Bloomberg Opinion. He is, of course, uh, the, the, the Jono Sarah but he's also a Bloomberg Opinion columnist these days, and uh, today's column is Revoke Social Media's Shield, but for the right reasons. Twitter, Facebook, and other platforms won't get serious about cleaning up content until they face liability. He makes a great point, Paul, about how... You know, it's only now, 12 days before the end of the Trump presidency, that, you know, Twitter and Facebook are actually booting him off. You know, it it does seem... Yes, the
3: timing is is not lost on a lot of people.
2: Yeah, yeah, you could definitely (laughs) be a little bit cynical about it. All right, it is time to have a conversation about the climate. And we can be absolutely sure that under John Kerry, assuming that he is the next climate czar and that that all goes ahead without any problems, we will have a very different approach in this country to climate. Rami Ryu was one of the negotiators for the Paris Climate Agreement and he joins us now. Remy, first of all, what's your anticipation for when John Kerry takes office and, and how it will manifest itself? It's a new post.
6: Hi, Vonnie. Hi, Paul. Yes, uh, from France. Uh, pleasure to be to be with you and and to see. Uh the momentum growing uh, in the U.S. Uh, behind climate. Uh, John Kerry was uh, a key actor of the Paris Agreement. I, I clearly remember when I was the chief negotiator on finance uh, back in uh, in 2015, and so a lot of, of course, a lot of expectations to see the U.S. Uh, back uh, on board uh, and very active domestically, of course, but also on the international stage.
3: So, Remy. Give us a sense, as one of the uh, negotiators and architects of the Paris Agreement, why is it so important, this agreement for climate change, and what's really the focus right now for uh, this agreement?
6: Well, we all know we have to do our homework uh, in each and every country for energy transition, uh, to uh, change the way we invest in housing, uh, uh, but that uh, the emissions uh, are going everywhere, and so we, we need absolutely need a common framework and way more international cooperation uh, with the Chinese with Europeans with African countries and and that's what the Paris agreement uh, was about uh, a common uh, framework with uh, a clear mechanism uh, with a ratchet close uh, never uh, expanding ambition and this is what we will discuss this year uh, in Glasgow by uh, November um, headed by the UK government uh, with COP26, five years after the Paris agreement, we will take stock of where we stand and hopefully increase ambition. And, and that's for the voice of John Kerry, the voice of uh, Brian Dees, the voice of uh, uh, Jonathan Pershing, the whole team that is back uh, in business. Will be so important
2: are they speaking to corporate america, corporate france, corporate Germany, and whatever country we, we you know we might be talking about, or are they actually speaking to the governments? What can
6: governments do um, An interesting point in the Paris agreement and the way the French government at that time uh, organized the discussion is that it was not a classic intergovernmental UN discussion. We tried to expand uh, your uh, financial uh, radio, so uh, uh, we tried to light up uh, each segment of the financial sectors. At that time, and then we can measure what is happening so see what the green bond market uh, uh, became uh, in five years and we certainly will go away uh, farther uh, in the coming months uh, and years and so yes uh, the private sector uh, private financiers uh, private corporations are key uh, in this effort but you need the instruments to link public and private of course and that's that's what public development banks are, are about Remy, one of the first moves from
3: President Trump and his administration was to uh, pull the U.S. out of the Paris Agreement. What what were the practical ramifications for that uh, move?
6: Well, good news is that uh, it takes two years to uh, really come out of such uh, an agreement so the okay. the real so there was still a US uh, team in the negotiation for 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 the last few years and since uh, president elect uh, Biden decided to come back there will be no uh, no interruption uh, in uh, the US in the negotiation but of course uh, the decision had a lot of consequence on the on the momentum and of and hopefully there was the american pledge with the cities, with NGOs, with uh, corporations uh, uh, taking the helm uh, and, and doing more. Uh, and now we expect the government to come back.
2: So you were just offering us a little opening there, Remy. You are chair of the International Development Finance Club, and you just mentioned how you know, international banks and intergovernmental banks are very necessary when it comes to things like climate agreements and so on. How does your International Development Finance Club play a part in all of this?
6: Well, in the way Europe, uh, Asia, Latin America, Africa developed and is now fighting against climate change and against uh, inequalities, uh, you have at the center of our uh, economic system a public financial body, a public development banks. Remember in the U.S. uh, during the 30s, you had this uh, Reconstruction Finance Corporation that was the instrument, the federal public instruments at the hand of President Roosevelt to come out of the crisis. And so we decided uh, last November to gather them all. There are 450 public development banks in the world. It amounts to 23 trillion dollar investments each year. So that's 10% of uh, global total investments that are public and uh, to work uh, collectively. And so we we are expecting, we are dreaming of having, again, a U.S. uh, counterpart, Senator Markey, uh, you know, uh, so active uh, behind the Green New Deal, was present at this Finance in Common Summit. And he supported the Finance in Common Coalition, and we will pursue in 2021, and certainly liaise with all U.S. colleagues uh, uh, to do more.
3: Remy, how has the pandemic, the global pandemic, impacted the mission of the Paris Agreement? Uh,
6: Well... The pandemic, of course, is uh, slowing down international uh, cooperation, and that's where it's so important uh, to rely on national forces. So, of course, now we have uh, the, the global framework, the Paris Agreement, that, that is uh, Still alive and very active, and probably more vibrant uh, than in the previous uh, years. But we need to have allies, we need to have forces, we need to have institutions in each and every constituency. Uh, because the, the the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, the Paris Agreement, it's not about international affairs. It's really about the way we produce, the way we consume, uh, the way we live. Uh, And what we have to change, and well, we know we have to do it in France, you know you have to do it uh, in the U.S., and certainly that was part of uh, the debate in the discussion, and now we have to join forces and do it together. Remy
3: Rayu, thank you so much for joining us. Remy Rayu, chair, International Development Finance Club, also a Paris Agreement negotiator. And um, um, Vani, it's gonna be very interesting to see how quickly the US re-engages uh, in this Paris Agreement um, when the president-elect takes office on January 20th, clearly is a big part of uh, Mr. Biden's uh, campaign to re-engage uh, with, on a global scale with our partners to fight climate change.